Okay. All right. So I think I'm the next speaker, so I don't have to be introduced. I've been introduced already. And what I'll be doing over the next half hour is giving you a sort of highlights from CROI 2022. Um, I have no... <laughs> Nami Lane Abram from Columbia University. Um, I have no financial uh, relationships to disclose. And the learning objectives of this session are to list factors associated with a lifetime risk of acquiring HIV in the U.S., describe treatment options for people with drug resistance, describe the advantages of universal HCV screening of pregnant women, and really to, to bring CROI data to your clinical practice or research. I'll um, go through five domains, public health and prevention, antiretroviral treatment, pregnancy, focusing on both HIV and HCV. I'll briefly talk about some findings of children, treatment in children and adolescents, and then um, talk about the, the cure case. So colleagues from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated the lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis in the U.S., looking at it by male and female, by geography, by age, and by, by risk. Um, you can see in these figures here on the left, lifetime risk among males by race, ethnicity, and on the right among females, and to note that the shorter bars imply higher, higher risk. So overall risk of, of, of lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis was higher in men than in women, highest in Black, African-American, and Hispanic men, higher in Black women than in white men. Let's see. So this is black women and white men in yellow. And the highest risk age group was um, young people in their 20s. When you looked by geography in the US, the highest risk jurisdiction was in Washington, DC. And nine of the 10 states with the highest risk are in the South, not surprisingly. The overall lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis was estimated at 1 in 120 and 1 in 27 among Black men, 1 in 50 among Hispanic men, and 1 in 75 among Black African-American women. The CDC also presented a really interesting program of direct-to-consumer HIV self-test distribution program. It provided an opportunity for persons to order HIV self-test kits using the OraQuick in-home test. They had an online ordering portal, and they marketed this program for priority audiences through a number of different venues and media channels. They were able to deliver 100,000 HIV self-test kits in eight months all over the U.S., all 50 states, and reached populations that had reported never having tested before 
or not having tested for more than a year. And they were able to demonstrate demand for HIV self-testing and appeal to people who had never tested before. And of course, testing is the, the gateway into both prevention and treatment activities. So I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the publications and the data on injectable cabotegravir for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. In the last year or so, there were two uh, seminal publications, one for HPTN 084, where they demonstrated that IM cab long-acting was superior to tenofovir FTC in preventing HIV infection and in men and transgender women with a reduction of about 66%. And then in HPTN 083, they demonstrated the same findings with an even greater reduction, about 82%. This led to the FDA approval of IM cabotegravir for PrEP and inclusion in the CDC recommendations. So at CROI, there was new data from HPTN 083, which included um, the first year of their open label extension where participants on the um, Tenofovir arm were given the option to receive cabotegravir. They found a nearly identical reduction in incidence with the IM cab in MSM and transgender women, again, about 66%. Overall, however, incident rates in both arms were higher, about 1.5 times higher than they had been in the uh, original study. And they attributed this primarily to lower adherence in both arms, but in the cabotegravir arm, they estimated exp uh, adherence at about 92% and it dropped closer to 80%. This is mostly individuals getting their shots on time. Overall, there were a total of 25 incident infections in the cab long acting arm, actually very low incidence. And you can see breakthrough infections are extremely rare. Among those 25, there were seven cases that occurred despite on-time injections in highly adherent individuals. So extremely rare, but they do happen. And five of those seven cases developed integrase inhibitor um, resistance mutations. In a second analysis presented at CROI, they were able to demonstrate that if you used a sensitive RNA viral load assay for screening of new infections among people on LA-CAB, you can identify infection earlier than using the antigen um, antibody assay and also presumably, hypothetically, reduce the risk of acquiring INSTE resistance. Another important study that was presented at CROI was the ANCHOR study. And this wasn't about prevention of, of HIV, but rather anal cancer in people with HIV. So as you probably know, anal cancer is the fourth most common cancer among people with HIV. And it's older men 
MSM are at particularly high risk for anal cancer. So anal and cervical cancer are very similar diseases, and they're preceded by high-grade squamous epithelial, intraepithelial lesions, or H-cell. And the ANCHOR study was, um, was set up to, to take a page out of the cervical cancer playbook and to basically determine whether testing and testing for and treating anal H-cell is effective in reducing the incidence of anal cancer in people with HIV. So they screened um, over um, 10,000 people, identified over 4,000 and enrolled over 4,000 individuals with H-cell, and they were randomized to active monitoring or immediate treatment. There were various treatment options, but for the most part, it was primarily electrocartery ablation. And this was an event-driven analysis with the primary outcome of time to cancer. The median follow-up was 25.8 months, and um, the study was, was terminated by the DSMB they recognized a 57% reduction in anal cancer in the immediate treatment arm. There were overall 30 cases of invasive anal cancer, nine in the treatment arm, and 21 in the active monitoring arm. Cancer incidence in the treatment arm was 173 over 100,000 patient years versus 402 uh, in the monitoring arm. And as I said, the DSMB recommended stopping the study and making treatment available to all participants. And I think we can expect to see some um, changes in guidelines or recommendations coming out of this extremely important um, study. So I'm going to pivot now to antiretroviral therapy or to, to treatment in general. Um, but I'm going to start with another uh, study from the CDC where they estimated life expectancy after an HIV diagnosis in years 2008 through 2018. And overall, they uh, were um, identified an increase of 4.2 years or about 15% over the decade for all persons living with HIV. Life expectancy varied by age group, sex at birth, race, ethnicity, transmission um, category, and stage of disease. Um, and interestingly, in 2018, life expectancy was longer for Latinx um, and for men who have sex with men. Overall, however, life expectancy remained lower than that for the general U.S. population. Now, there were many, um, much work presented at CROI around new antiretroviral agents, um, both for treatment and prevention, and you'll get a lot of that information in one of the upcoming talks by Dr. Orkin. So I'm just going to focus on a set of studies that uh, might be considered switch studies um, that looked at a particular set of issues. And one, this is the first of three studies, Vizend, where they um, had three questions. 
I wanted to know whether you could use dolutegravir with recycled NRTIs, whether that was inferior to the use of a boosted protease inhibitor with new NRTIs in second-line treatment. Is the combination of tenofovir lamivudine inferior to the new, what they was calling new formulation of TAP, um, emtricitabine when combined with dolutegravir, and can tenofovir and lamivudine be recycled in second-line treatment? Is that inferior to switching to zidovudine, lamivudine? Now, the background on all of this is the World Health Organization up until a couple of years ago, a first-line treatment were two NRTIs, tenofovir 3TC with the Favarans, and the recommended second-line treatment required a switch to AZT3TC along with a protease inhibitor or dolutegravir when it became available. In this study, they had 1,200 participants. If they were virally suppressed, they were randomized to switch to either TLD, tenofovir lamivudine-dolutegravir, or TAF-dolutegravir. If they were not virally suppressed, defined as over a 1,000 copies, they were randomized to one of four arms, the same two, or to an AZT3TC with either atazanavir or lopinavir-ritonavir. And what they found was in people with HIV on NRTI-based therapy, who had a viral load over 1,000, and this is an RMB in particular, and that's what you're looking at in, in the figure. They found second-line treatment with dolutegravir, keeping the tenofovir in 3TC rather than switching, was not inferior to protease inhibitor-based treatment using a new nucleoside backbone. And switching to dolutegravir with either of the tenofovir regimens achieved very high levels of suppression. And you see at week 144 in the orange and pink bars, um, close to hovering around 90% uh, suppression. Retaining tenofovir after first-line treatment rather than raise, um, replacing it with AZT does not increase the risk of treatment failure. The second study that was also looking at the same issue was the Nadia study. And this study had been presented in a previous CROI and published um, in the New England Journal. And in this study, people with HIV with virologic failure again um, on an NNRTI plus tenofovir-based regimen in sub-Saharan Africa were randomized in a two-by-two two factorial randomization, first either dolutegravir or darunavir, and then in each of those um, randomizations, either to stay on tenofovir 3TC or to switch to AZT. The week 48 results, which have been published, demonstrated that second-line therapy after an NNRTI plus tenofovir 3TC failure Dolutegravir is not inferior to darunavir, and that tenofovir 3TC is not inferior to zidovudine 3TC. At CROI, they presented the 96-week results, and they were able to demonstrate that dolutegravir with the, with the tenofovir 3TC or any backbone has, gives durable suppression and second-line therapy that maintaining the tenofovir 3TC is actually 
superior to switching to AZT, looking at viral suppression, at rebound, and resistance. They also looked at resistance among individuals with um, viral rebound greater than 1,000 copies, and they found that um, all the resistance was to, to the dolutegravir, not to the PIs. And among the seven with resistance, only two were in the tenofovir arm and five in the AZT arm, further substantiating the, the approach to keeping the tenofovir rather than switching to AZT. And finally, there was the 2SD study or switch, switching uh, treatment experienced insti-naive individuals who were virally suppressed offer ritonavir-boosted PI to dolutegravir. And here you can see these were individuals who were suppressed on dolutegravir, on a PI regimen, and there was no baseline resistance testing or history of the previous regimen, and they were randomized to switch to dolutegravir or stay on their current regimen. And um, you can see from the, the very similar red and green um, bars that switching the suppressive uh, PI-based ART to dolutegravir was non-inferior virologically, and it also resulted in some metabolic um, parameters improving. And there were no new resistance mutations that were detected in, amongst those who were, were not suppressed. So there are some lessons from the trials of switching, and I confess these are not my lessons. These come from, from Dr. Gandhi from Harvard, who's previously distilled some of this work. But dolutegravir plus tenofovir plus 3TC suppresses HIV RNA in the majority of people with HIV, even when the NRTIs are not predicted to be active. In treatment experience patients with viral suppression, switching from a PI to dolutegravir maintains viral suppression, even if the resistance status is not known, particularly of the NRTIs. And in patients virologically suppressed on complex regimens, switching to tenofovir FTC plus a drug with a high barrier resistance is likely to maintain suppression even when there is pre-existing NRTI resistance. And these um, studies together have important implications around practice, particularly in low resource settings where resistance testing is not routinely done. So I'm gonna to shift to talk some about findings in pregnancy. Um, well, U equal U is well accepted around preventing transmission, heterosexual transmission. We're still seeking evidence in the maternal um, uh, vertical transmission or what was previously called maternal infant transmission. And these are data from the French national cohort. They've included all women uh, who've had a child since um, 1986 across all centers in France and followed the children for two years. And um, they looked back on all of their, their data and they were able to show, let's see if I can use the pointer, that the lowest rates of transmission were amongst women who had started ART 
before they became pregnant. So here's 0.1% compared with 0.7% of women starting the third trimester. When they looked at the over 6,000 women who were on ART at conception, the proportion who were virally suppressed uh, by delivery steadily increased over time, certainly as antiretroviral therapy improved. And what they were able to demonstrate was if women were, were um, on ART prior to conception and were suppressed at delivery, they had no transmissions, none amongst the 5,000 um, women who met those criteria. So we're still looking for evidence of UICLU during breastfeeding, but this was really very nice evidence of the application for, for pregnancy in preventing new pediatric infections. They also saw new findings from the VESTED study. Um, the VESTED study has all the first findings were already published. This was a study looking at dolutegravir use during, during pregnancy and the efficacy of dolutegravir-based regimens. You may remember that there have been some uh, bumps in the road to getting dolutegravir for pregnant women because of some early findings around first um, conception exposure and a possible association with neural tube defects. This study um, started women who were ART naive on one of three arms, but started during weeks 14 to 28, so did not address the neural tube defect issue, but rather looked at efficacy of dolutegravir with TAF, dolutegravir with tenofovir versus efavirenze NRTIs, which was the standard of care at the time. The findings from vested maternal dolutegravir-based ART was superior virologically at delivery to efavirenze and based ART and also women who are on those regimens gained more weight or closer to the expected weight gain. The study was done in sub-Saharan Africa. So there were actually in other, all over the world. So there were um, many women who were quite um, underweight during pregnancy. They also demonstrated that dolutegravir plus FTC-TAF had the lowest composite frequency of adverse pregnancy outcomes. So not only are you concerned about maternal treatment efficacy, but what happens to, to the baby. And um, the dolutegravir-TAF looked like it was the safest regimen during pregnancy. And this may have been because it had the best, the women had the best weight gain. Um, and live-born infants in all of the arms had similar, similar or similar, except for weight with a higher proportion of low birth weight or smaller babies in the efavirenz arm. So at CROI 2022, they presented further data on growth of infants with perinatal ART exposure. They looked at length for age and weight for age Z-scores that they monitored through 50 weeks of, of age. And infants born to mothers who started the efavirenz regimen were significantly smaller um, throughout the first year of life than infants whose mothers were on the dolutegravir regimens. Rates of stunting were 
incredibly high across all three three arms. So these were were children who had less than uh, two per, two percent second percentile for length for age. And the mechanisms of these differences are not clear, but the child's growth is determined by their, their size or partially determined by their size at birth. So this may all circle back to maternal weight gain and having differential weight gain based on, on the NRTI, on the, the regimens women were receiving. We also saw Croy the first data on safety and pharmacokinetics of CAB long acting in pregnant women. In the original HPTN 084 study, women who became pregnant were required to use long acting contraception or discontinue IM CAB. There were 49 pregnancies, nonetheless, overall, 29 among women on CAB. And they looked at the pharmacokinetics, a sort of washout as women stopped the drug to see whether there were differences in the pharmacokinetics um, for pregnant women versus non-pregnant adults. And they were um, not, they were fairly similar. So it didn't seem as though pregnancy confers much difference in terms of uh, the behavior of the drug. It was also uh, determined that um, all of the pregnancy-associated adverse events, none were attributed to the drug. The final pregnancy study I want to discuss is um, a study from uh, Western Pennsylvania, where they compared HCV screening and case detection during a risk-based versus universal HCV screening among pregnant people in care. And um, the first period of time, they did risk-based screening and then changed the protocol so that they did universal screening for HCV. And universal screening increased HCV IgG screening from 23 to 81% of women. The prevalence of HCV um, positivity was 1.2% in the original, in the risk-based screening versus 1.9% in universal screening. And they um, identified 11 cases in the universal, in the risk-based approach versus 85 in the, um, the universal screening. So it's pretty clear that universal screening leads to many more women being identified as having HCV infection during pregnancy. We're not yet able to treat HCV infection during pregnancy, but we can expect to see some advances in that area in the years ahead. I'll pivot very quickly to two uh, presentations on kids. And the, the first is uh, the, was the MOCA study where presented data on long-acting cab ropivirine for treatment in adolescents. The original studies did not include adolescents. So this was an opportunity to look at PK and safety in 12 to 18-year-olds receiving initially monthly and then bimonthly injections. 
and they were able to demonstrate that they achieved exposure concentrations consistent with predictions and comparable to those observed in, in adults in the FLAIR and ATLAS studies. They also did some qualitative work um, and found that there was general, um, that in general, the youth and their caretakers were amenable to taking shots. Most of the themes were around that allowed them to not have to remember to take their pills, to hide their pills, to um, for caregivers to remind them to take their pills. But at the same time, there were concerns about how long they could sustain coming monthly or bimonthly for, for, for shots. So these data did lead to inclusion of adolescents in, in the um, drug labeling. And then there was one um, other study on the other end, looking at, at little kids where they looked at the treatment, using treatment with BNABs in children with HIV, the Tetello study, and they evaluated a monthly combination of intravenous, um, two intravenous BNABs as a treatment alternative to ART among a cohort of very early treated children in Botswana. These were children who started treatment within the first days or hours of life, and they had been on treatment continuously for several years. And they were put into a, a protocol where three steps. First, they got ART. They were on ART. They got it with the, the dual BNABs. Then the ART was stopped and they continued the BNABs. And then the BNABs were stopped and the ART was restarted. And they found that of the 25 children who received who were in this part of the study, that 11 children were able to maintain durable um, viral suppression off ART during the study period. And that um, children who had been on the ART and BNAB for longer, um, those with smaller reservoirs, those who had been on ART longer before they started, all were, these were favorable characteristics to leading to being able to stop ART and stay virally suppressed. This was the first um, sort of proof of concept uh, in, in children. And then finally, I know that everybody here has read about the cure, uh, the third case of cure. Um, this was probably the highest profile presentation at CROI, an HIV remission with a CCR5 Delta 32 haplocore transplant in a U.S. woman. She was enrolled in an IMPACT 1107 study, and she was a female of mixed race with AML who had a haplocore transplant and then um, had stopped ART 37 months post-transplant, and they reported on her 14 months um, off ART with no viral, viral rebound, detectable replication competent latent reservoir virus, or detectable cellular immune response. So this was very exciting because of the new approach to the transplant, and also to see a woman of mixed race added to the two prior cases. So 
I will end there. This was just a smattering of some of the many findings um, from Croy. It was an extremely exciting meeting. If you haven't had a chance to, to visit it, go to the website, you'll find a lot more uh, fantastic stuff. Can you sit down? You sit down. I'll stand up because I've been sitting down all morning. Um, great, Elaine. Uh, maybe before we get to the questions, you give us a hint. Croy in person or virtual? Or oh, both? yeah. We're going to be in person. Okay. Because um, Rick has all the vaccines worked out. So okay. we're going to get vaccinated again present. in the fall, and we're all going to be in. I don't know if it's possible, but your. Um, uh, the the switch study, the Mulenga study. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's possible to go back to those slides because I think there may have been a typo uh, in the results of that. I, it confused me, and I didn't want to. If it's possible to do that, kind of halfway through your presentation. Yeah. Sorry. That's not here. Um, this one, okay. Um, arm B, less than 1,000 copies. Arm B is greater than 1,000 copies. So it's a typo there. So it's uh, on the yep. table, uh, arm B is greater than 1,000 copies. So it's, yes. yeah, okay. So, but the results say it's in greater than, yes. Got it, so okay. Should... Sorry yes, about a, that. Apologies. Um, I just didn't want anybody to nope, you're right. get confused. Um, any role for AZT anymore, Elaine? Um, you, you presented several things where, you know, it's no longer in first line and even in second line, it doesn't fare so well. Is it time to, it's a great drug, right? It's been part of our history, but is it time to thank it for its service and move on? I, I think that it's moving out of favor for sure that I, I can't see completely eliminating it because not everybody's going to be able to, to tolerate a tenofovir based okay. regimen, but do we need to switch and to use it in second line? Probably not. We, I, I do want to just put in a plug for kids. We don't have tenofovir for children. So we, so we do need to continue to use it okay. until we can get TAF for kids. Great. Yeah. Uh, this is my question. Um, uptake of injectable, um, uh, long-acting injectables in practice. Drug companies know how many prescriptions are being written. How many are being written for injectables versus oral? So uh, I can't, I'm not the right I, I, person to answer that. I'm perhaps I'm just curious as to can, but I do think it has been complicated getting started, certainly for right. injectables for treatment. It takes so maybe, a lot of effort. I don't see Chloe, but she's around. So she'll so, have an answer. Yeah, okay. Answer I'll, 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 I'll ask her as well. From uh, a, a number of questions about um, uh, uh, testing uh, using CAB for PrEP. Timing of HIV RNA testing uh, when using CAB for PrEP. So, so the, I think that the investigators were recommending that that be done as the routine every, every three months or so for individuals on, on PrEP 
to uh, detect potential incident infections. So, uh, and a related question, um, cab for prep and resistance. And, uh, the question was presumably the person failed prep and develop resistance. Is that was that the correct interpretation? Yes. That? So the 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 analysis and resistance was done on the very few number of breakthrough what were being called breakthrough infections. So um, the, there were a number of people who on the cab arm who did acquire new infections. Some of them had delayed time to injection, so adherence may not have been fantastic, but there were seven individuals who had, quote, perfect adherence, who still had breakthrough infections, and those are the ones where they looked for resistance. Got it, and that's where there was some resistance. Yes, that's where there was some resistance, so the thinking is if you could detect those breakthrough infections earlier, earlier then perhaps you could avoid acquisition acquiring those resistance mutations. Great. At the same time, and this is more a public health point of view, you think of the, the cost of all of that viral, you know, sensitive assay testing when there are actually very few new infections. So you have to do a lot of testing to find them. Right, because there were very few new infections in people on the eye injectable cab. So like a lot of our field, it's coming down to implementation science questions in terms of the economics. And cost-effectiveness, yep. And then a related one, again, a breakthrough uh, on on cab and remind us that what effect that had on the background uh, NRTI um, uh, arm of the study was the, was the breakthrough um, with that the, wasn't report the the breakthroughs on the tenofovir arm right right that uh, I don't have that data that that wasn't part of what okay, I okay. prepared but I would assume the background the alternative arm was daily tenofovir three three it certainly would have developed so TBC resistance yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned that life expectancy remains lower. How, what is it actually? How much lower is it uh, today uh, with HIV uh, uh, persons uh, receiving good therapy? How much lower is it than the uninfected population? I don't know the answer to that. I think it's seven to 10 years. That's what we've been hearing. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, worth, um, worth asking. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I thought it was interesting that the Favarin's uh, uh, weight change in adults kind of also was reflected in in the kids right i mean so that the kids born to women receiving an integrase inhibitor were also uh larger and presumably that means healthier at right and there are two things that determine that one is their birth weight or size at birth will influence how how big they they are the other thing to keep in mind is many of these uh, women were breastfeeding and on their treatment during breastfeeding. So we don't know if there was some exposure to the drug during breastfeeding. So, so questions still, and maybe yes. the Croy, mechanisms are yet to be defined. Maybe Croy 2023 will give <laughs> us some more answers. Good. Um, uh, great. Um, any sense of the implementation of the anchor findings in clinical practice? I think one of the issues with uh, with anoscopy and management uh, has been 
even in some really good um, uh, HIV clinical practice settings, it's been, I think the uptake of, of that has been somewhat slow. Is there, is there any effort uh, to implement that in practice? So I, I apologize. I'm not like, that's, you're, you're a I'm, pediatrician. I would not be the one, but but there was a special session on these findings at Croy, where a lot of these questions were were discussed. That how do you move from these findings to put this into practice? Not only to train people to make treatment available widely, but also to to have good good uptake. So Great. I think. Um, wiser people than I are, are trying to oh, work on that yeah. right now. Yeah. And we're running out of time, but um, one coming, coming back to the cab resistance, um, were those people infected with a cab resistant virus or? Presumably they were not infected with a cab resistant virus. So presumably pre- what happened is the keep, keep in mind that cab has a very long tail. And there aren't very many people it. with cab so, resistant viruses out there. Exactly. Right? So there wasn't enough cab in the community, presumably. Right. To, to have people with cab-resistant virus transmitting it. The, the idea was that they had undetected viremia with cabotegravir on board. Got it. And therefore were, were selected. Developed it during ex- that. Exactly. But I don't want to emphasize that there were very few breakthrough infections. Yep, 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 yep. So a lot of attention to the resistance implications, but the total number was Tiny. Very small. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then finally, we have a number of questions, but finally, what is the safe viral load for HIV infected uh, men uh, who wish to become surrogates? Say, say that safe again. Vi- viral load for HIV infected men who are on treatment who are interested in surrogacy. Probably I would not detectable. Yeah, at least minus, you know, less right. than 20 would be my, it has not been studied, but I would want to be the lower the as low you as equals you. possible yeah. again. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. Lots of good questions. Um, and Elaine and I are going to do this kind of a shuffle now, so I'm going to invite her to come up to the podium to introduce the next speaker.